Hello and welcome to Now Next, the podcast that explores your meaningful now and your meaningful next. I'm one of your hosts, Mary Claire Kunkel, here with Drew Tucker, and this summer we are focusing on interviewing alumni from Capitol and Trinity, as well as some current students, about their specific vocational journeys. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. We are so grateful today to be joined by Kevin Sowers, who is an alum of Capital University and also happens to be an alum of one of my favorite places, Duke University as well. We can talk about that at some other point, but we are thrilled to talk about vocation and particularly about how vocation has taken root in your life. The way we talk about vocation in the Center for Faith and Learning is any meaningful life-giving work you do for the world, any meaningful, so things that bring meaning to yourself or others and life giving things that are not decreasing the life we have to live, but increasing it in some kind of way. But it's directed at others. It's directed at people beyond ourselves, even as it rejuvenates us as well. So this idea of vocation is really important for us. And so we're so excited to hear how it relates to your life. So Mary Claire, why don't you ask our first question? Yeah, so we're starting off real simple. Um, so Kevin, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am the president of Johns Hopkins Health System and the executive vice president of Johns Hopkins Medicine. I oversee the operations of an $8 billion corporation uh, that delivers healthcare in multiple communities. We have four hospitals in the state of Maryland, and we have one hospital in Washington, D.C., a standalone children's hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I also oversee a lot of other corporate functions that help in the delivery of healthcare services beyond the hospital, such as uh, primary care, specialty care in our community, ambulatory surgery centers, home care. So it runs the gamut of healthcare services and also supports Johns Hopkins' mission of clinical excellence, research, and education. That sounds like a lot of responsibility. My little 22-year-old self is like, I don't know how one could manage that. But what about you just as Kevin as a person? So Kevin, as a person, um, I love to garden. I love spending time on the water. I do love to, when I have time, to volunteer in our community and to give back in a meaningful way. During the COVID, I actually helped vaccinate people in the community um, because my background, of course, is in nursing is where I came from capital. Um, and so looking at all the ways you can give back to the world is, is an important part of who I am. Um, and I also have a partner, Anthony, and he and I have been together for over nine years now. And we have a puppy dog, Gracie. So we hang out with her and, and that's fun too. What kind of dog? Cocker Spaniel. Oh, so cute. I am both a water person and a dog person. So I feel though we have not met before very close to you at this moment in time. (laughs) I'm a gardening person, so I've got that side of it. I'm curious. So you said, obviously, that you did nursing at Capital, but I don't think you started in nursing. So can you tell us a bit about why you chose Capital to begin with and then how you ended up in the place that you're at? So originally I came to Capital for music, voice and piano. I did not come from a place of wealth. And so my family did not have the resources to 
send me to capital at the time. And so I did a lot of scholarships, a lot of loans, but I also had to work in the summer months. And I found two jobs uh, in the summer months. And, you know, it was very interesting. In the morning, I went to work and I did music therapy at the county nursing home and did music therapy for them. And then um, in the afternoons for three to 11, I would go to work at another nursing home in town and I would become an orderly and I would bathe people, feed them and put them to bed. And it was during those summer months that I found my purpose. And my purpose was making a difference in other people's life through taking care of them. In terms of making a difference, it wasn't always about good outcomes. Sometimes it was about knowing what it meant to be present, no matter what was happening in, in, in an individual's life. And I, I always tell a story that is a story that comes out of South Africa. And it's a true story about a hunter and gatherer uh, tribe, uh, the only hunter and gatherer tribe that's still alive in the world. And one day a young man went to visit this tribe and the young man asked, he said, you know, how has your tribe survived so long? And the leader said, let me ask you, young man. He said, um, do you understand the two most important days of your in your life? And the young man said, uh, it's when I was born into this world and it will be when I die. And the leader of the tribe said, no, you've only got one of those right. The two most important points in your life is number one, when you are born into this world, but the second most important day in your life is when you find your purpose. And that's how our tribe has survived so long is we understand our purpose as a hunter and gatherer tribe. And, you know, I tell that story only because when I was working those two jobs, I, I knew that was my purpose. I knew at the time men weren't going into nursing. So going home to my Ohio farmer dad and telling him that's what I wanted to do was probably not going to go well. But my mom said something when we were in the discussion about the fact that I wanted to be a nurse because my dad said, no, finish your music degree. And, you know, you can go back later if you want to be a nurse. And not only that, um, nursing is a woman's job, not a man's job. And my mother stopped him and said, uh, Sam, you know, it's not about whether you're a man or woman. Is do you understand the purpose of changing and impacting another individual's life? And that's what our son's telling us. So, you know, when you when you connect with someone else in your life, that understands your purpose, I always tell people anything is possible. So the reason I'm sitting here in front of you today and being able to talk about this is because my mother connected with my purpose and knew what I meant. And so surrounding yourself with others who understand purpose is incredibly important and especially connecting with your purpose. So that's how I got there. What a great mom. I mean, just incredible kind of support, but also insight. That's a blessing. It also ties into our theme so well. Thank you for sharing that story, actually. So you mentioned that you went into capital for one thing and then ended up leaving capital with another sense of purpose. But what are some things that you learned at capital that you just absolutely were not expecting to learn? So I learned a lot at capital. Um, I learned a lot about giving back. Um, and um that that has stuck with me because you know I was a member of APO, which is was the service fraternity, and um, and of course we were all about being of service in the community, and 
And that still rings true for me today. But I also had another experience at Capital that has taught me in a very important lesson. I've already mentioned that my family really didn't have the resources to go to, to Capital without student loans. And there was one semester that I couldn't figure out how to make all the numbers work to pay for the next semester. And I had a fraternity brother and his dad came into my uh, dorm room and he closed the door and he handed me an envelope. And in the envelope was a check. And the check was for my next semester. And in it was an IOU note of how I could pay him back. And there was everything from coming over to his house and raking leaves, house sitting. So he had ways that I could pay him back while I was still in college. And the note proceeded to say that at the end, there will be an amount that you owe me. And then you have to send me monthly checks. When I think about giving back in that way, here's a person who didn't have to do this. I was not his child, but he wanted to invest in me and my future. And to this day, um, folks at Capital know that I have now taken on every semester in writing a check uh, for people who can't afford to continue in that semester because someone paid forward for me an opportunity of a lifetime. And I feel obligated now to give back in that same way uh, because it becomes so incredibly important to people, giving them the gift of a future, uh, where if I would have had to have dropped out, my, my life would be completely different now. That's a powerful gift. It reminds me of our thriving is tied up with someone else's thriving, that, that our ability to succeed is not isolated, but it's in community, I think is really really helpful. And, you know, you've mentioned, you know, your, your work now, you've gone from a family that wasn't a whole lot of means to managing a company of $8 billion in assets that has locations all over the country. And you started that process at a small liberal arts school. You went through Duke. How does that whole thing happen, right? Like Mary Claire joked about feeling a bit uh, overwhelmed by it, but how does someone go from rural Ohio to Capital, which is a great place, but not necessarily well known to Duke and then Johns Hopkins. That's a that's a, a rare journey. So you do it one day at a time. You know, one of the things I don't do is take this for granted because this could all go away tomorrow. And so as long as you stay true to your purpose and you're you're able to articulate that purpose and connect with people and never lose sight that especially in healthcare, that at the center of everything we do, there's a patient and family that will always need us. And you guide your decision-making around that element, you'll always be okay. I'm not about the fact that I'm the president of Johns Hopkins Health System. In fact, when people ask me what I do, I often say I'm a nurse, which is true. Um, but that's more important for me than being the president because being the president can go away tomorrow in the corporate world. And so if I am connected only to that in, in my purpose, then I've lost sight of my purpose. And that's where I watch a lot of people get lost along the way when they become more about the role than the original purpose of why they went into what they do every day. And, and so I've never lost sight of that. And, and I'm literally true to you when I say I did it one day at a time. I came to work, I did my job, I got recognized for doing my job, and I got promoted. 
I'm pretty sure that's how Mary Claire puts up with me in the office. She just does it one day at a time and she'll eventually get there. Well, the interesting thing you have to remember is when I became a nurse, back when I became a nurse, nurses were not allowed to be executives of healthcare systems or CEOs. The most they could do is become a chief nursing officer. So I didn't become a nurse to become a CEO. So that's why I'm so intent on staying connected to the purpose because a lot of people get lost along the way as they get promoted. I think that's so important. And I think that happens in a lot of different fields. Like I mentioned before we started recording that a lot of people in my family are teachers and just hearing just through them as people get higher and higher up in administration, they're further removed from the classroom and can't connect as much. So I really appreciate that you stay true to, you know, your nursing roots and make sure that whatever is happening is in support of that original mission. Cause like you said, like it's kind of evident that it's very lacking in a lot of places. So that's very admirable. You know, people find meaning in a lot of different religions and worldviews. And we're curious, how do you find meaning or make meaning in your work? Cause sometimes in the daily sludge of any job you have to really make meaning to not drive yourself up a wall. <laughs> So there's a couple things that I've learned about meaning, and that is the importance and value of being open to differences. Because in my career and in my current role, I have to be open to a lot of differences from a diversity inclusion perspective, because we take care of people from around the world. So not all people who come to our organization are Christian. Um, we have Muslims. We have Catholics, we have, I mean, there's a variety of different faith backgrounds that come to us. And we also have people who come to us believing in only a higher power. So I refer to it as the importance and value of spirituality in, in our lives, not necessarily always religion, but being open to people's faith, what hope looks like for them. But at the end of the day, and I know there's a scripture that talks about faith, hope, and love, but in healthcare, I, I talk about faith, hope, and caring, because it's through caring that we demonstrate our love for other human beings and give back. And so I would say that I find uh, meaning through my faith, understanding hope and what that means in my own life and in the lives of others. And then through caring and, and making sure that we have people in our organization that really know how to care and be compassionate and do it with passion so that they understand what it means to impact another human being's life. I absolutely adore that. That is one of my favorite scriptures and even like that whole chapter. I really liked how you talked about in a lot of instances, like spirituality and meaning making is how people find hope in their lives. I've never heard it quite phrased that way, but I think it's like right on the nose. And also care is kind of a synonym for love. Like love is innately caring about someone and so replacing that and having that kind of be a like mission when it comes to like healthcare is just so amazing but also you're more than just a nurse and more than just your career so we're curious what places outside of your career do you find meaning in your life there is a, a lot of places that i I find meaning. There are moments that I find meaning in nature. We have a, a lake house down in North Carolina that we've kept that we've had for years. And 
there are moments that I sit out and look at the lake and I find great meaning in the whole environment that surrounds me because of the peacefulness, the calmness that occurs there. I find meaning of spending time with my mother who is now 80 and uh, being reminded of what she gave me and what I need to give her. I find meaning uh, spending time with my partner because um, uh, what we do each and every day is hard to do it by ourselves, but to have someone in your life who truly cares and loves you is an incredible experience and cannot be forgotten in terms of the impact it has on who we are as human beings. And then I, I find great meaning in, in the friendships that I've had for many years and staying connected to people and having the opportunity to learn from them by watching how they live their lives and um, both the good things they've done and the challenges they've had. But uh, that's all a part of life's experiences. Not every day is going to be a good day. There are going to be challenges. And sometimes you're going to have to help some of your closest people uh, in your life uh, through those challenges and, and being present and not judging and being supportive, uh, but yet being direct is a, a value that I have found that helps people with them re being reminded about their own meaning and redirecting them. That uh, it speaks a whole lot more personally to my situation this week since my mom just broke her hip last week. And so I was up in my hometown in Orville, Ohio for a week supporting her and my dad as they were at the hospital and she's transitioning now to rehab. So that idea of support that's caring but direct, I think is really it's, it's something that I learned now um, as someone who didn't think I'd be taking care of my parents quite this early. So so that's a really valuable piece of, of life. You talked about, and I love this, like, as you said, the differentiation between religion and spirituality. That's actually why we're in the midst of hiring a new assistant director. And it would have in a former life been an assistant director for campus ministries, but we've intentionally made the shift to an assistant director for religious and spiritual life, because not everyone who has a spirituality would identify as a religious person. And that idea of, of transcendent meaning is something that we pursue, even if we don't identify as a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or anything like that. But I'm curious in the world in which you live in, in this medical realm, what are the intersections that you see in spirituality or religion and medicine? How do those things interact and interrelate? If I've learned anything in my over 36 years of being a nurse and being in healthcare is you can never underestimate the power of faith and its relationship to healing. And when I say faith, it doesn't necessarily speak to a church or a denomination. It speaks to people believing, believing in something that is bigger than themselves, believing in something that brings meaning to their life. And sometimes that is not uh, necessarily going to church, but their spiritual belief system that is the framework for where they find purpose, where they find meaning, and through that purpose and meaning, they find healing. And I, I've seen that multiple times in my career where that becomes an important source of driving people to the next level in their life. So we can never underestimate that and, and, and the power of that. I am not on track to become a pastor myself, but I have a lot of friends who are a few years ahead of me in seminary. And this past summer during the big 
COVID summer, they were all in CPE. So they were posted up as chaplains in different hospitals across kind of the country. And hearing their stories, especially one of my close friends calling me sometimes when she had overnights and just the importance of pastoral care in those situations, even for people who don't necessarily have a religion or even a spirituality, just someone who's there to listen and have support is just from what they were saying and just thinking about it, such an important task, but also a really like challenging task of emotional labor and something I don't think a lot of people think about very often. Yeah, you know, this uh, the COVID period of COVID we've gone through has been challenging for all types of providers in our healthcare system. Everything from our frontline housekeepers, to our physicians, to nurses, to respiratory therapists, to pastoral care. But the presence of pastoral care has been incredibly important because you have to remember that many of these people, these patients who are dying, are dying without their family present. Now, yes, we've tried iPads, we've tried to connect in multiple ways, but that's not the same. And what many of us have been challenged by is that's not the way we were taught to take care of people. A part of our purpose was bringing the family together, comforting the family during a time of loss. And our inability to do that, I see, has caused moral distress in our care providers because it, it, it went against everything they were ever taught. And so here at Hopkins, we're having something called a summer of healing, where we're trying to give our workforce time away to um, deal with the more moral distress that they felt. We're providing all types of resources to support them uh, because it is and was a challenging time for our healthcare providers. I think bringing up that topic of moral distress is really, it's so important. I just did a training and I thought I was done with eight hour days on zoom, but then I saw a training that was worth it and it was on moral injury and how we as pastoral caregivers address the realities of moral injury in a new era of COVID and eventually in a post COVID world. And the interesting thing is I found out during that training that in special forces in the United States military, they actually use that. And that was particularly interesting to me because my brother is a green beret. And so I was actually talking with him about the ways that the military, and now I'm hearing about how the medical community and how spiritual care, all considering moral distress and moral injury in different ways. I wonder what that means now for us as we, I mean, as you said, the Delta variant is very real. And I think there's going to be a potential new kind of moral distress when so many people thought we were done with this. And the numbers are not necessarily indicating that as we look at the vaccination numbers and the rise in the Delta variant cases. And I'm, I wonder how we can respond to a second spike that some people just don't believe will ever show up. Um, not that you can answer that, but it's just scary. I think what I worry most about is how politicized this virus has been and how politicized masking has become and also vaccination and the amount of misinformation that is out there on the web. And so as I look at this next wave, which we will have a wave and we're seeing it, I mean, if you look at Missouri as for instance right now, just 
out of control infection rates. Uh, as I look at our hospital down in Florida, day after day, that curve is going straight up in terms of the number of people. And the number of people that are being infected with the Delta are more non-vaccinated than people who've been vaccinated. And so I worry about the division that's occurred in this country and people not really understanding their risks right now and the risk of a lot more people dying. And so we need to continue forward in terms of continuing to educate, and Hopkins has played a critical role in the world of educating people about uh, COVID and the response to COVID and vaccines. And so we will continue that, but it's going to take all of us talking to people who are non-believers of, of the vaccine or, or believe that this COVID virus doesn't even exist. It is alive and well. Uh, and every time I hear that conversation, I take the opportunity to give real-life examples that I personally have seen but I do believe a part of our workforce, a part of our communities will have PTSD in this next surge. They will have post-traumatic stress syndrome because it's like, I thought it was over. Here it comes again. I'm not sure if I can go through this another time. And I do think that's real. And I think we have to stand ready to support people during that difficult and challenging time in our world. Thank you for that. That was totally an unscripted question. Another unscripted question at you. Do you have, it's okay if you don't have an answer, any suggestions on what we can do about processing? One, just the collective trauma we all went through since, you know, March and beyond. And then also with what is coming in the next wave, especially for people who are on, you know, the quote unquote front lines of it. You know, there's two things, lessons, you know, in, in most crises, um, you see an end to it. Um, and that's how you get through it. So the beginning of the crisis, you have this adrenaline surge, you know what you got to do, it's control and command, and you do it, and you get through it, and you see an end. What's been a challenge of this is people don't see an end. And I'm worried about this summer uh, that we're having right now, and people think it's the end, but it's not. And so when we get ready to go into fall, and many states are already seeing this, I do worry about our preparedness as a, as a community. And so what do we need to do? Um, number one, we need to make sure that we understand the facts. Are we looking at the right websites, and is it based in science? Uh, because science is powerful and meaningful in responding to this um, virus and this pandemic. Uh, number two, we need to do the right things to protect ourselves, and that's masking, social distancing, and getting vaccinated. Number three, I would tell you that we have to be ready to support one another. So for instance, right now, if I was working with Drew and I saw that Drew was down today, I would go to Drew and say, are you okay today? Because the amount of anxiety and depression that we've seen occur post-pandemic and, and during the pandemic, and also the incidence of suicides in this country because of this is significant. So how do we how do we begin to recognize the people around us and are they struggling? And how do we acknowledge that we're seeing them struggle? And then how do we say to them, we want to make sure you get the right help because I care about you? And then how do you know what resources to bring to bear to support someone? I think every one of us, no matter what our jobs are, healthcare, non-healthcare, we're going to see that in all of the industries across this nation and around the world. And so I think whatever we can do 
and, and this gets back to faith, hope, and caring, to bring that and be present with that in the workplace. Um, once again, no matter where you are, and even in your families, understanding where a family member may need help. But that caring piece on that faith and at the end of that faith and hope piece becomes incredibly important as we respond to this next wave. And then lastly, I do want to be respectful of your time because I know we're nearing the end, but we have a question we ask all of our guests at the conclusion of our interview. And this is back to vocation, any meaningful life-giving work for the world. And so we're curious, what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? I think the enormous responsibility that comes with it and how do you hold yourself accountable for that vocation and staying connected to your meaning and your purpose that drives you forward. And that that's a huge responsibility if you really want to make a difference in the world. So I think that's something I wish I would have understood. I didn't know the responsibility that comes along with it. Thank you. I don't think we've had that as an answer before. So thank you. Well, Kevin, thank you for sharing your time with us today for the responsibility that you bear and the ways that you share your time, the difference that you make in the world. I am so grateful that you are a part of this capital community across the globe and that you sacrifice some of your time to talk with us today. Uh, I want you to know that if you ever come back to campus um, and you want to want to work together, I will be a colleague and ask you how you're doing too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, give Anthony our best and we uh, hope you take care. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure meeting you and spending time with you today. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.